I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Dr. Rodney Brooks, co-founder of Rethink, a company that makes robots for the manufacturing industry. Rethink's first robot was introduced in 2012 and is named Baxter. In 1990, Dr. Brooks founded iRobot, which makes robots for the consumer and defense industries. iRobot's first consumer product was the Roomba, a vacuum robot introduced in 2002. The company went public in 2005 and is headquartered outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Brooks was formerly on the faculty at MIT from 1984 to 2010. His influential paper, entitled Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, was the inspiration for the Errol Morris documentary of the same name in 1997, in which Dr. Brooks is featured. Welcome. Thanks for having me here. Could you please define what a robot is? Well, it's a bit like trying to define what art is, but I use the definition the robot is something that senses the world, does some computation, and then decides to act outside the extent of its own body. And I say outside the extent of its own body because I can't stand the thought of a dishwashing machine being a robot. Uh, it's, It's not intelligent enough to me. In 1990, you started your first robot company called iRobot with the intention to produce practical robots. What did you intend to to build and to bring out to the market when you first launched the company? When when we first launched the company, we really didn't know. We we were a bit naive, more than a bit naive. We knew we had technology to make robots mobile and move around. And we thought, well, everyone's going to like this technology. We'll just start a company. We've got a list of 14 failed business models we went through before we finally got the Roomba in 2002 and the military robots at the same time. And then we went public in 2005. Uh, But we had 14 failed business models, which weren't all bad models, just the world wasn't quite ready for some of them. And what's one example of a model that the world wasn't ready for? Well, one example was uh, we were doing nuclear power plant inspection robots with the Japanese government, funded by MITI, Ministry of International Trade and Industry, partnered with Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. We did the research. We couldn't get traction for it to be a product until March of 2011, one week after the disaster, the Japanese government called iRobot. I was still on the board at that time and said, please send some robots to Japan. So instead of launching with a nuclear power plant robot, you launched with a vacuum cleaner. How did that happen? Well, we, we, had, we had 14 models that we'd looked at, 14 different sorts of products. And all along, people said, well, I'd like a robot to clean my home. Back in 1990 or 1991 at my lab at MIT, we'd actually built a prototype vacuum cleaning robot. It wasn't very good. So eventually, towards the end of the 1990s, where we had learned to do low-cost manufacturing in China, because we'd been doing toy robots for a while, we decided to have another go at building a a vacuum cleaning robot. It wasn't the first vacuum cleaning robot on the market. The first one was from uh, Electrolux for 2,000 euros in Europe. The key decision we made was we figured out that $200 was a price point that a person could spend without getting their spouse's approval. And so that became the target. The first model was was $199.99, September 18th, 2002. You've said before that the robotic revolution parallels the PC revolution. And you've mentioned that uh, when computers started to become more pervasive, they found their ways in toys and games initially uh, before becoming more robust and complicated. 
Similarly, it seems like the Trojan horse for robots is also in toys and games and vacuums. Yeah, well, in terms of the number of absolute number of robots, vacuum cleaning robots are more than any other sort of robot by far in the world. Industrial robots that are currently in factories really, to me, are like the mainframes of 30 years ago. Ordinary people can't touch them because they're dangerous. They're very hard to program. And then the PC came along around 1980, And slowly it started to get into offices, and ordinary office workers got to control computation. And and the spreadsheet was the first killer app, if you like, where ordinary people could program the computer without having to be programmers. So So we're trying to do the similar sort of thing for, for industrial robots that ordinary factory workers can learn in minutes how to get it to do new tasks. Just as the PC did not replace the human being and made the human being more ostensibly efficient, your claim with Rethink is that these robots for manufacturing are also assisting the human rather than replacing. The yeah, human very mu- very much so. I, I, you know, we didn't get rid of office workers. There's lots of office workers around now. The, the tasks that office workers do are very different from the tasks they did 30 years ago. They and they're much more empowered. And so I see a similar sort of thing with these industrial robots. Could you walk through some of the other uh, examples of robots that you've built? On the military side, you have these small uh, unmanned ground vehicles that were launched in Afghanistan, for example. What other applications are there of, of these robots? We built a lot of custom robots over time. We built some for NASA for experiments with Mars rovers to develop the software for exploring Mars. We built a a robot for National Geographic that uh, went into the Great Pyramid and crawled up a little tiny tunnel and cut a hole through uh, to a a cavity that was known to be behind there. It was very small, just the the, uh, diameter of the tunnel was just a few inches so a person couldn't get up there. Then the robot drilled a hole through to see what was inside this cavity and there was nothing there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And when you were starting the company uh, and you were seeking venture capital, I mean, this is the nascent stages of the robotics industry. What did that landscape look like? Well, we didn't actually go after venture capital uh, in 1990. It was totally self-funded. And we we would get contracts and ask for half the money up front because we had to float you know, our payroll. In fact, for the first eight or nine years, we never knew that we were going to make payroll at the end of the month. We always did, though. Hmm. Um, uh, so it wasn't until 1998 that we started getting venture capital. It was 1998. It was boom times for the Internet. I remember the most depressing uh, interchange was Colin, Helen, and I, the three co-founders, on an August afternoon, it was hot, we were sweaty. We go into this one place and they send out a summer intern, a junior in college, to talk to us. We start telling him what we're doing and a few minutes in he looks at us, he says, you mean you build stuff? No one builds stuff anymore. And that was the end. So in fact, I went off and started my own venture fund. Got some money from uh, from some Swiss pension funds, and started a little uh, venture fund with some some people I, I knew called Robotic Ventures, and we did a few investments. But I realized I wasn't very good at being a venture capitalist. We did fine, but you know I like I like pushing the boundaries of things that are almost impossible, and 
the role of a venture capitalist is to put discipline on the entrepreneur. <laughs> I was just the opposite. And then fast forward to 2008, when you founded Rethink Robotics, you had an easier time raising capital after the success of iRobot. You and Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, were the early investors. Yeah, I st- I, when when I founded Rethink Robotics, it was gonna, very much going to be a venture-based company. I, I put in some money, and uh, Jeff Bezos's personal investment vehicle put in the other money for the very first Series A1, as we came to call it. How did you meet Jeff? Well, I, I, I met Jeff a long time ago. Um, uh, I, I first met him at TED, Technology, Entertainment, and Design Conference, and he was actually an investor in, in iRobot before it went public. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Dr. Rodney Brooks, co-founder of Rethink Robotics, a company that produces robots for the manufacturing industry. Dr. Brooks is professor emeritus at MIT. What was the catalyst for leaving iRobot and going to Rethink? I know that they are focused on different industries, but were there any pivot moments for you? Well, I... I had spent from the from 1997. I had been going to China to learn to do low cost manufacturing. I came to realize I, that that was not going to be sustainable in the long term. That costs were going up in China. Even in the late 90s, if you were doing sewing for toys, that had already moved to Vietnam. So I could see sort of the writing on the wall. I sort of saw that people would want to do more manufacturing back in the United States. Had to be more productive. So I, being a robot guy, my answer was, let's have robots for manufacturing. But then people asked me, why didn't I do it inside iRobot? Uh, iRobot was sitting on a lot of cash, uh, well over $100 million at the time I started uh, Rethink Robotics. Um, but if they spend that cash on a long-term development program, it comes off the bottom line, and Wall Street would slap them. So I presented the idea to the board, and as I expected, the board said, no, we can't spend our cash on that. Um, I was under all sorts of agreements with them. Uh, they got equity and Rethink Robotics in return for releasing me from some of those agreements and got outside capital to start Rethink Robotics. Now, Baxter's the name of the robot that you've launched. It cost $22,000. What does Baxter look like? Well, Baxter's a... a um, red and black. It it's, has humanoid form. It has two arms. Um, it has a LCD screen where the face would be, and normally there are eyes animated on that, on that face, and the face always points towards any person who's nearby the robot. And when it's about to reach for something, the eyes glance at where it's about to reach. So if you're working in close proximity to it, it doesn't surprise you with an unexpected motion. It's a bit bigger than a human being. We tried to have it have human reach, but it doesn't have any hips so we had to make longer arms. So I say it's like a, an Olympic swimmer is hmm. the size of the arms. You mentioned Baxter's eyes. Are they functional or more social so that people interact with him as if he were a human being? Yeah, we call we call Baxter an it because I, I, I try to make my robots deliver on any promise they give in their appearance. And, and, and I don't know what to promise in terms of gender, so I always call them it's. The eyes... There is a camera right above the, the LCD screen, so it is actually seeing. But the animated eyes are really to give a person an understanding of what the robot is paying attention to. Just on the subject of humanoid uh, robots, what are the, the benefits of, of creating a robot that looks human-like? Well, actually, when I started Rethink Robotics, I didn't believe we were going to build a humanoid robot. That was not the original intent. 
But over time, as we talked to many potential customers, a lot of them said they wanted to be able to re- replace the robot with a person. So that if the robot went down, they could just get a person in to take over temporarily so it didn't slow things down. Hmm. So they wanted the reliability of replacing with a person. And that led us to build a robot with human-like capabilities in terms of what sort of things it could lift up, five pounds at full extension, and how fast it could move. Uh, I've read before that, that one, um, one, dis- one potential disadvantage of making a robot too, too human-like uh, is that people might have um, disproportionate expectations of what it could do. Can, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I say that if you make your robot look just like Albert Einstein, it better be as smart as Albert Einstein, or otherwise people are going to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. So we tried to make Baxter look up, up, you know, have the appearance of about how smart it is, which is not really very smart. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the roboticist, Dr. Rodney Brooks. We'll hear more from Dr. Brooks coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Dr. Rodney Brooks, co-founder of Rethink, a company that makes robots for the manufacturing industry. In 1990, Dr. Brooks founded iRobot, which makes robots for the consumer and defense industries. iRobot's first consumer product was the Roomba, a vacuum robot introduced in 2002. Dr. Brooks was formerly on the faculty at MIT from 1984 to 2010. I've heard you say before there are four things needed to solve issues with with robotics. Do you want to tell what they are? So I've been telling uh, people in research for a while that there are four aspirational goals. If we make improvement in any of these four, just improvement, the robots will get a lot better. So the first thing is the... The visual visual capabilities of a two-year-old child. A two-year-old child, you can show them objects. You can show them a pair of glasses. They'll tell you it's glasses. You can show them a set of keys that they've never seen before. They'll tell you it's a set of keys. So getting to visual object identification capabilities of a two-year-old child. The language capabilities of a four-year-old child. A four-year-old child can understand accents. You don't have to dumb down the grammar. They may not know all the words, but they're learning words at an incredible rate. They understand questions. They understand conditionals. They understand a bunch of stuff at age four. At age six, the manual dexterity of a six-year-old child. A six-year-old child can tie shoelaces. A six-year-old child can do any task that is asked of a Chinese factory worker. They have that dexterity. They may not be able to play Chopin on the piano, but they've got the dexterity to do any sort of cooking task, any sort of task in the house they're so inclined. And the last one is the social understanding of an eight-year-old child. It's really a nine-year-old child, but I say eight (laughs) to make it a pattern, where an eight- or nine-year-old child understands that a person different from them has a different understanding of the world, and they can reason about what that person knows because of what that person has been exposed to and seen in the world, and they don't make the mistake of thinking that everyone has the same model of the world as they do. If we had all those four capabilities, we would have the, you know, robots beyond my imagination. And if this ideal robot were achieved, could the robot mature to be an older uh, humanoid, uh, you know, individual through pattern recognition and repetition, uh, it, just it, as it, humans it, could? It, it, it may. You know, uh, our robot, even Baxter, does some sort of learning. But learning is such a loaded 
term because when human learning is so rich, um, so I didn't ask for the richness of human level learning in those four capabilities. I was trying to make pretty much a, a robot that's a useful tool. How much has your understanding of human behavior and, and the chemistry of the human body, how much have you had to enrich your understanding of those systems, even the spiritual life and the physical life of a human being, to help you in your robotic work? During the 90s, my students and I at MIT really looked at child development a lot as inspiration for how to build the subsystems that could make up a robot that was adaptable to the world. Mm -hmm. And so that inspired us in trying to understand what modules, what software modules we needed to build to process sensory information and to uh, control uh, dexterous actuation. You are considered a pioneer in, in the field of behavior-based robotics. And essentially, you advocate using decentralized systems to create robots rather than a centralized system. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, and I'll, 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 t I'll tell you how it fits in in the Baxter context, actually. So uh, you could have a top-down planning system where the wanted the robot to do some task and it would plan out ahead of time every single step and then follow that plan. And a lot of traditional AI artificial intelligence tries to do that. Baxter has lots of little behaviors that run in parallel. So, for instance, its arms will not collide with each other. If you try to bring them close together, they'll push each other away. It knows, a little rule knows, that, you can, that it can't put something down unless it has something in its hand. So it has lots of little simple rules like that, which make it adaptable to a changing environment because it's not pre-computing exactly what it's going to do ahead of time. It's reacting to what's in the environment through many, many parallel, simple little behaviors. Why did you pioneer this shift from centralized you know, robotics to decentralized system? What do you see as the advantage? Well, back in the 1980s, I was um, looking at uh, trying to make robots navigate around in the world. And the computations were getting more and more complex. And I looked at little insects. And little insects with just 100,000 neurons were able to fly around and do all sorts of things we couldn't make a robot do with a big mainframe computer. So I, I realized there had to be a different way of organizing things. In addition to studying childhood development to better inform your work, have you also thought, you know, just on a larger scale about, like, what human beings are? Like, what is your view of, of human life? So I, I, for a long time, I was confused by how someone could be both a scientist and be religious. It didn't make sense to me. I'm an atheist. Um, and then I realized that in my own life, I had a duality of of interpretations of the world. So if I look at, uh, carefully at a person, they're a big bag of skin full of biomolecules which operate according to rules and, 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 and are predictable in a, in, a, in a sense. But my own children, I love unconditionally. I don't treat them as bags of skin full of biomolecules. I have two different ways of being in the world. I have the scientist way and the, and the father way. And so I realized that we all have multiple views of the world, which we use at different times, and we're actually pretty comfortable about holding mutually inconsistent sets of belief. So yes, I think we are all robotic, chemical robots. That is what we human beings are. And by the way, all of modern science actually believes that it's all about van der Waals forces and things like that. But people then have a different view of humans, which is, can be very spiritual or very religious.
Now, you know, your view of humans being chemical robots, uh, you know, might might not sit well with, with some people. And I, I've heard you say before how it's been hard for society to some extent to accept our... A lack the, of specialness. Our lack of specialness. You know, we started off thinking we were the center of the universe and the sun revolved around us. And then and we... God, and God had made the earth for us because we were the peak of creation. And and the one that really got it for me was Gary Kasparov. Um, Gary Kasparov uh, was beaten by Deep Blue, the world chess champion. Gary is a, a very sweet guy. I met him just a few months ago. But when he was beaten by Deep Blue in the 90s, the IBM supercomputer that beat him at chess, when he was beaten, he caught up and he said, well, at least it didn't enjoy beating me. <laughs> Because he still had the specialness that he had emotions, but the computer didn't have emotions. So, and I realize we're always trying to be special. We want to be special. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Dr. Rodney Brooks, co-founder of Rethink Robots, a company that produces robots for the manufacturing industry. Dr. Brooks is a professor emeritus at MIT. Incidentally, you mentioned you have children. You have four children. Are any of them in the field of robotics? What do, what do they do? None of my four children are in robotics, but my youngest daughter is actually an entrepreneur in in Silicon Valley making engineering toys for young girls. I want to talk about your upbringing. You grew up in Adelaide, Australia. Um, Your father uh, was a telephone technician, and your mother was a hairdresser. You spent some time as a child tinkering with with leftover rocket equipment. Your dad was initially a telephone technician, but then he he worked in a testing facility to help Europe build its first satellite launch system. Can you describe some of those early moments? I I actually had a book, uh, The How and Why Wonder Book of Electricity, and another book, The How and Why Wonder Book of Computers and Giant Brains. And I got them when I was about seven years old. They were American books. And they just gave a little bit enough information for me to start building simple circuits. And for some reason, I wanted to build intelligent systems. So I, when I was about seven or eight, I built a, 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 a computer, I called it, uh, which was made out of nails and light bulbs out of flash bul- flashlights and batteries and wires, which could play a very simple game where you took turns in taking away the, a certain um, uh, between one and four matches from a pile, and whoever ended up with the last match lost or won or something. And I built a circuit that could play that. And then I really worked hard. And by the time I was 12, getting a little more sophisticated switches out of old office switchboards as surplus equipment, I was able to build a a, a computer, as I called it, which could play tic-tac-toe and not be beaten. And I wanted to build robots, but I wasn't dexterous enough to get things that could actually mechanically move. I could build circuits, but it wasn't until I was around 15 or 16 that I built my first robot. And, you know, so you built your first simple circuit computer at seven or eight years old. Were your parents like, oh, that's nice. Okay, come in for dinner. Or well, actually, it was a little weird in that. I wasn't allowed to do it um, during the week because I had to, had to watch watch TV like a normal kid. <laughs> and on the weekends, I, I wasn't allowed to stay out in the lab, which was in the, a shed in the back garden, uh, past 5 p.m. So I had to learn how to be, I'd think all week what I was going to do on the weekend, what I was going to build, and then I'd get in there and go at it as hmm. quick as possible. Now, you were one of four children. Did your siblings uh, participate in this? Uh, my my older brother had a chemistry set and uh, in the same back back garden shed, uh, but uh, no, they were not uh, as 
dedicated to this as I was. I was an anomaly. In yeah. fact, I, I, I neither my my mother finished tenth grade, my father finished ninth grade, and at age four, everyone called me the professor because somehow I was weird from birth. You call it weird, but did you have a, a sense of self and you know continued confidence to say, okay, I, I am smart? Like, well, I could do things, uh, a mental arithmetic in my head. I don't know what it was, except by age four, I knew that I was better at computation, mm-hmm. arithmetic, than any any adult. Um, it was just something a, a gift. It was something in me. Now, there was one computer in Adelaide, Australia, and you had exposure to it. When I was younger, there was an IBM computer mainframe in the city that you could see through a glass wall, and I would go and look at that. Mm. By the time I got to uh, be an undergraduate at uh, one of the local universities... Flinders. Flinders University. They had a 16-kilobyte computer with Mm. four full-time operators running it during the week and you could punch your cards submit them and 24 hours later you could get your printout but one of the professors really understood that maybe I you know had a lot of interest in this and he arranged that over the weekend I was allowed to use that computer by myself for 12 hours every Sunday so from 9am to 9pm on Sundays I had that computer with one other student and I got to recreate and learn computer science myself there was no computer science being taught but I got to, to learn it and figure it out for myself now, you are so focused on, you know, math and arithmetic and computers and artificial intelligence uh, at the time. How about your social life, your social development? Uh, did you have girlfriends? And uh, I wasn't real good with girlfriends, but I, I, did, uh, I, did, I did play various sports and, um, and went to parties. <laughs> <laughs> you made your way to the United States. Uh, initially, you went to Stanford and got a PhD at Stanford. How did being in the United States change possibilities for you, well, if, I, if I, at all? I, I came to, to Stanford in 1977, um, and you know that was sort of a, a, a the blooming of Silicon Valley. And I came from somewhere where there were almost no computers, and you know I'd be, I would be in a McDonald's and hear people talking about software and programming at the next table. It was just such a different environment. And, and so I really was able to get immersed. I was able to you know, go to Xerox Park and see the Alto at the same time that, that uh, Steve Jobs was seeing the, w- the Alto and the mouse and the windows. The Alto being the... F- the Alto was the f- computer built at Xerox Park and was what essentially... Apple copied to make the Macintosh. And after getting your PhD at Stanford, you you ended up at MIT, but it took you a few years to finally become uh, on the faculty. Uh, And you said, even despite your rejections, you just kept trying. And and there's a quote you once said that rejection is not the end. No, rejection is not the end. I I did not get accepted to MIT as a graduate student. I uh, applied for a faculty job there three times before I eventually got a faculty job. Um, And the other rejection is I actually failed my qualifying exam at Stanford in in artificial intelligence. Um, First exam I'd ever failed in my life. Why Uh, did did, did you know upon taking the exam that, oh boy, I'm failing? I did not know that. I had I had got there and I was full of confidence and I just wasn't ready for the qualifying exam so I failed. 
When you finally did become professor at MIT in the 1980s, you developed various robots with students in your robotics lab, and eventually you met your iRobot co-founders, Colin Engel and Helen Grainer. By the way, I was surprised to see that one of your co-founders, Helen, is a woman. How many of your students are women? I had 27 PhD students, and I believe that 10 or 11 of them were women. So I had a lot more women in my lab than, than most robotics labs. Is that ratio roughly the norm? It, it really occurred because I had one woman, Anita Flynn. She had actually been uh, at the Naval Academy, was really strong, aggressive, and new leadership. And that made it safe for other women to come in and join the lab. And then it just became a tradition that women worked in my lab and more came. You were a faculty member at MIT for a quarter of a century. And so you, you kind of had this hybrid life where you were on both sides, both you know the academic life, but also the business world. Did that ever create conflicts within the university? Because more and more you had these professors entering business. Yeah, I was very careful um, to separate my two lives. So when we started iRobot, which was based on mobile robotics, I stopped doing mobile robot research and shifted to humanoid robot research because that was going to be a place that iRobot was never going to go. So my grad students would not be worried that what they were doing with me as a research project was somehow feeding into my company. Here we are, you know, just at the beginning of the robot revolution where you saw PCs uh, in the 1980s. Where do you see robots, let's say, 100 years from now? Um, I think robots are going to be pervasive or robotic systems. Now, back in 1980, if you told people that they would have computers in their kitchens in the 1990s, they would have thought you were crazy. But instead, by the mid-90s, mid-1990s, there were computers, there were microprocessors in everyone's kitchen. So the robots that will appear in our world will not necessarily be the robots of science fiction or the robots of Hollywood, but robotic technology will be everywhere. So, for instance, Toyota in their, in their uh, robot division have recently announced a, a robot to help elderly people get into and out of bed. Hmm. Um, doesn't look like a humanoid robot at all. It lets someone have a little more dignity and live at home longer, an elderly person, live at home longer because they can do stuff themselves with that robotic technology, which otherwise they would need people to help them get into and out of bed. Your mother uh, is still alive. Your, your father passed away. What does she think of, of what you've become? She, she's very proud of me, but uh, she doesn't really understand my life. In fact, most of my friends in Australia from the, those days don't understand the sort of life I have. You know, they'd be, what do you mean you only teach one course? Being at MIT is just a little part-time job. They didn't understand the idea of a major research university. So it's a very different life from what I came from. Just in your, your practical daily life, uh, what are your encounters with robots in your own home that maybe have you created any for you for yourself to help you make cereal in the morning? I, I don't have any special robots. I do have a scuba, uh, um, the small scuba that cleans my bathroom floor. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I was using Roombas for a while, but I'm, I must admit I have a cleaning service right now that comes in and does that. But, but the, the scuba keeps my bathroom floor very clean. <laughs> Is there anything else that you feel a pain point in your home? Like, oh, I'd love to have something that makes my bed. or No, I, I sleep in an unmade bed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Dr. Rodney Brooks. 
Coming up, we'll meet Daryl Cavins, co-founder of Zulily. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. <laughs> 